A Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. How are you today? I'm excellent and I'm happy to have you back in the oh, country. thank you. I am happy to be back, although I feel like I'm playing catch-up. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you're swanning around New York City with your people, talking to famous... I know. Um, a little bit fortunate. ...daytime television yes. hosts from the well, 2000s, creating awareness 90s. about the contraceptive pill is what I was there for. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. That was actually loads of fun. You were actually just swanning around New York City. Why wouldn't you? Well, I did that too. (laughs) But anyway, in your absence, I went ahead and did some work on our podcast because, you know, someone's got us. Someone's got to. Well, I'm grateful for you and for that because otherwise (laughs) our listeners get nothing. Well, there'd be nothing this week. But Mm. no, no, the show must go on, as they say. Mm -hmm. And so here we are. And today's episode, I know I say this every time, but really this one is a cracker and so important. Mm -hmm. We don't get political here at the Wellness Collective, but... I challenge you that at the end of this, you will want to pick up your pen and paper and write a letter to your local member about what he has to say. Okay. That's what I think. All right, okay. Come on then. Bring it on. I spoke to this guy. I'm Professor Andrew Pask from Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. So Professor Pask is the go-to guy when it comes to research into what's happening with men's hormones. I mean, you're the women's hormones kind of girl, Mm -hmm. but he's doing a lot of research about what is impacting men's fertility and their hormones and their hormone health. And I tell you what, (laughs) he gave me the stats on why this is such a big issue right now. And uh, I can't believe we haven't heard about this. It's really unbelievable, actually. So I think if you look now, there's some really good studies that have been done across the world that have shown that men's fertility, particularly in developed countries, has Mm. dropped by over 50% in the last 40 years. Hang on, say that again. Yeah, so we're producing about half the amount of sperm now that we were producing 40 years ago. And in fact, the World Health Organization, who who are the people who set sort of all the guidelines of what's considered normal, have had now to adjust what is considered a normal sperm count because none of us fellas today make the grade. We just don't produce enough sperm and we're not producing anywhere near as much as we used to. Wow. Yeah. So when something happens like that over such a short time window, that's not enough time for it to be anything to do with our genes. It takes ages for us to get mutations in our DNA that can then reach that sort of level in the population where you see an effect like that. Mm. So then this has to come from the environment around us. And we know we are completely surrounded by these endocrine disrupting chemicals. And they take the form of herbicides, plastics. They're also pervasive in our diet. So things like soy products, Mm. extremely high in synthetic estrogens or plant-based estrogens, which also affect the way that we develop and the way that our body signals and receives hormonal cues. And they all impact our reproductive health. Before you move on, let's talk about soy. Because I can remember my friend, she had a little boy, she was giving him soy and then someone had said to her, actually, it's not a good idea to give to little boys. Yeah, so when we evolved as human beings, we were not exposed to that much soy in our diet. Uh So we did have some, you know, of this plant-based estrogen in our regular diet, but we haven't evolved to see the huge amounts of soy that we see today in Mm. our diet. And so particularly for a developing boy, we would not normally see that level of estrogen 
in a normal diet or in their circulation. And so by giving huge amounts of that particular chemical as they're growing up Mm. can impact their development. And we know that it's particularly worrisome when kids are growing up. So definitely that time in the womb, so as the baby develops inside mum, but then after that as well and as you start to reach puberty, that's when the male is really going through that huge window of masculinisation and all of those organs becoming really male patterned. And that's when you do not want to see too much oestrogen because oestrogen actually blocks that process from happening. Oh, what do we do? I know. What do we do? (laughs) So BPA is the other really bad one. So that's one of the plastics, right? So this is completely pervasive in our environment. There is nobody within Australia that you could take the blood off and wouldn't have measurable levels of BPA within their blood. But BPA has been the buzz thing that everybody's taking out of drink bottles and cans and all that kind of stuff. So it got banned for lots of kids' plastics Mm. because of the known impact that it has on oestrogen signalling. And so then they just replaced it with BPB and other BP (laughs) compounds, which have the same effect. So they can get around the regulation by just switching what the chemical is. And we don't yet have regulations in place for those other chemicals, which is another major concern in the field, is how long it takes scientists to really do this research and figure out which chemicals are good and which chemicals are bad. And the rate at which these things are being released into the environment, we just literally can't keep up. And I think it's a really interesting phenomenon that the 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 onus goes on to the scientists. So to me, yes, to prove, you've got to prove it. that this is bad, rather than the people who are using this and putting it in our food and spraying it on our vegetables, showing that yeah. I have to do it. No. <laughs> I have to do it to an incredible degree before anybody <laughs> listens and actually goes, "Oh, hang on a second, this actually sounds bad," which it just blows my mind. I think something's really wrong here with that dynamic. Well, that yeah. Well, they really should be proving that it's safe. Right. Rather than you having to prove that it isn't safe. So BPA, that plastic, was actually developed, one of its main uses was as a synthetic oestrogen. They actually made this thing to be really good at binding to the oestrogen receptor, which is what we have in all the cells of our body, Mm. and activating these oestrogenic pathways. So that was the absolute known role of that particular chemical in the human body. Mm. And then it just got found out that it happened to be a really handy compound for making plastic nice and soft and pliable so it wasn't brittle plastic. And so I guess without doing any sort of homework or really thinking about it, they started putting it into all soft plastics that we have around us. Mm. It's in the lining of our coffee cups. So if you've had a coffee from a local place this morning, you've had your you know daily dose of BPA and then some that is now circulating around your body. Another reason to get a glass keep cup right. sort of arrangement. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And it's in the lining of canned foods. So canned foods are just oh, laden that bothers with me BPA. So because, it's everywhere. You know, we're told that, say, okay, my son is particularly fond of a can of tuna. Now, yeah. he would eat a can of tuna every day, but this has come to my attention and I am think now, okay, well, the benefits of him eating the fish and the fish oil and all of the good stuff yeah. that you get with the tuna is that outweighed by the fact that the tin is, is full of BPA and now yeah. I'm affecting his masculinity by making him eat a can of tuna every day. <laughs> it's really hard to make good decisions about what the food that we eat. It's just absolutely <laughs> impossible. Uh, get tuna in a pouch, but the pouch is probably laced with BPA as well, (laughs) full of BPA. I don't think there's any way around it. It just literally is unbelievable. But now I think we're really starting to see firsthand what these impacts are to human society. So this decrease in male fertility is something that's really becoming much more present now. People are really starting to talk about it a lot. The other disease I do a lot of research on is hyperspadius. 
So that's when the urethra doesn't open in the normal location oh, on the okay. end of the penis. Yes, see, this so, is horrifying as well. I right. did bring this up with a few guys that I know to, when I told them that I was talking to you. Yeah. And the look on their faces <laughs> when I told them this, they're like, what? Is that really a thing? Yeah. And I said, yeah, so yeah, you better explain it. Well, it's, it's so the urethra where, the, where your urine comes out mm. isn't at the end of the penis where it should be. It's somewhere beneath the head of the penis or along the shaft or in really severe cases, it can be at the base of the scrotum even. So that really screws wow. things up, requires lots of operations to try and correct it. But so the staggering fact about hyperspadius is, again, it's one of these diseases that's doubled in the last 40 to 50 years. So in Australia now, one in every 125 live male births has hyperspadius. That's nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible number. Why Why are we not talking about this? I don't know. Hyperspadius is a really interesting one. So there's a lot of stigma associated with it. Obviously, it's a defect of the penis. So yep. guys aren't going to come out and say, oh, I've got, you know, a defect <laughs> with my penis. So it is, it's one of those things that gets hidden. I think also parents don't really talk about it with their children. Mm. So a little boy might have corrective surgery when he's too young to remember and then grow up maybe thinking it's normal yep. and not really understanding what the scars or things are on his penis until he asks maybe in later life. Yeah. Or somebody else takes a look and goes, that doesn't look normal, and asks the question. Mm. So it's one of those things I think we just really don't talk about in society, but it's so common. One in every 125 males yeah. is a staggering number. If there were other things, you know, sorts of tumours or things that had that level of incidence, it would be, everybody would be up in arms going, Front we must news. do something about this. Yes. So again, it's one of these things that we just don't talk about. And of course, when you have that defect, it is linked with things like an increased risk of infertility, mm. decreased masculinisation, all of those things sort of come in that same umbrella of having that particular defect. So it's not just the hyperspadius on its own, but everything else that goes along with it. And we know that these chemicals that activate oestrogen in males can cause hyperspadius. That's absolutely, completely known. And so, again, there's sort of this disconnect as we know this disease has doubled in incidence, that we're not going, hang on, so what is it that mm. we're getting exposed to that's causing all of these terrible defects to happen? Oh, my goodness. I know I'm, it's not funny. I just have these visuals and yeah. I know that it's serious, but I'm like, how is it that we've not known, I don't know anything really about about no. that being so prevalent. Well, this is the I thing. I can imagine that it happens, mm. but like, what did you, I mean, one in 125? I know. Well, this is the thing about this guy. He's got this information. I'm like, oh, the first time I ever heard about him was on a radio station. Well, you said we need to talk to this penis man. Yeah. That's what you referred to him <laughs> as. Did you introduce you? Just say, hi, Andrew, the penis man. No, no I didn't. But, you know, he does have very important information about penises yes. that affect all yes. of us, let's yes. face it. No, it's not funny. You know, the, the really important part about this is is pregnancy, right? Mm. I mean, this is when it all happens. So I asked him if you're a pregnant woman and you're worried about this happening to your baby in utero, what can you actually do about it? Yeah. I think you have to be really careful about the foods that you eat while you're pregnant. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, males, it's a little easier because we have a much more flat line hormonal profile. Yeah. So we don't have sort of the cycles, sorry, <laughs> of going up and down that you see in a woman. Yeah. So our profiles are much more even keeled. There is fluctuations in them, but not to the same scale as you see in females. So for males, you can measure hormones a little better and get a better idea of what's going on, but certainly not in utero, right? You can't measure a male fetus and figure out what's happening there. Mm. So I think for, for pregnant women, women, you do if you, you know, you really have to be careful about the foods that you're consuming and what you're doing during that pregnancy, because that really is the 
window when it is the most sensitive mm. to these impacts. So they affect every part of the masculinization of a male embryo if you see too much estrogen. It can really affect all the developmental pathways that are important for making that baby turn into a normal male. And unequivocally, they're the things that are causing then the decreased fertility and hyperspadius and other mm. sort of male reproductive health problems that we're seeing. And we think it's probably also linked to prostate cancer, which again, there's anecdotal evidence that that's increasing. You know, all sorts of other male reproductive issues like erectile dysfunction, that's something that seems to be going up in younger men as well. Really? Absolutely related to going, going estrogen levels. To well, yeah, not, or not, yeah. <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> so there's a whole sort of suite of things, I think, that are all related to our exposure to these high levels of estrogen. I guess it's, a, it's no different for men or women. We need to be really aware of this. Mm. It's obviously affecting us in different ways. I, I guess being aware of it when you're pregnant mm. um, is even um, more of a reason to be more diligent because you certainly don't want to think that you could be doing anything Absolutely. that is going to be harming your baby. No one's doing that knowingly, but it's these these xenoestrogens that I talk about all the mm. time. We're not talking about something different. We've had these discussions before. It's just that we're looking at a very specific um, and outcome, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, specific outcome that's way more common than we, than we thought. So the human body is this amazing engineered piece of biology that is absolutely phenomenally good at making sure that that developing fetus when you're pregnant isn't going to see weird hormones that it shouldn't see. Yep. And so the placenta is incredibly good at removing estrogen from the mother's circulation and making sure it doesn't get across to the developing fetus because if that fetus is a boy, you don't want to see that high level of estrogen. And so we have all these checks in place to really be really good at removing that stuff from our system. The problem with chemicals like BPA and some of these pesticides and things that are found in flame retardants is they don't look like oestrogen even though they have that same effect in our body. Oh, they, they... And so the placenta can't detect them and they just cross straight over from mum circulation over into the, the developing fetus then and then have these impacts. And so they're really good at sort of evading our body's own defence against this. And mum's circulation of oestrogen goes through the roof when you're pregnant. You know, you get mm. huge amounts of oestrogen to help support that pregnancy, which is important for you, but you don't want the fetus seeing that. So we have all these things in place, but they just don't work these when you start ones. to throw all these, yeah, bad chemicals at us that we're just not meant to see. Right, we need to take a break. You might need to go and make yourself a cup of tea. <laughs> it's quite full <laughs> on. Hey, um, stick around though, because Professor Pask is going to tell us why, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, Gilead, yes, the whole yes. thing about... You know, w women having to have babies for infertile yes. families. It's actually not that far from reality. Mm. Spooky. We're here talking with Professor Andrew Pask from Melbourne University. I am a little bit bummed because, as we mentioned, I didn't actually get to chat with him in person. I would have loved this conversation. I know, but I love the fact that you're hearing it for the first time now and you're like, oh, what my, heck? what? I know. We'll have him back. Don't worry. Now, you know, I said to him that this makes me think of The Handmaid's Tale, which mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've seen it but um, or read it, the Margaret Atwood book, but you, just go and Google it and you'll find out what it's about. It's sounding a lot like Gilead, the place where right. the uh, that takes place. Right. Yeah. I've watched that show. It's a great show. And, it's you know, horrifying, It's though. horrifying, but you look at what's happening to fertility around the world. You look at what's happening with our exposure to these chemicals and you're like, maybe this isn't such an altered reality. Maybe this is something. I mean, we're definitely heading there 
Now in Australia at the moment, it's one in six couples have to seek assisted reproductive technology. So that's IVF or using Clomid or something to help them conceive. Mm. And so that's been sort of discussed in the medical society for a long time as being, well, we just have kids when we're a lot older now. Yeah, well, that's what I always which thought is it was. definitely true. But when you look at all the other factors as well and when you start to break down the people who are showing up at IVF clinics by different age demographics, mm. you see that that's not the entire story. Definitely that's had a huge impact on our ability to conceive. But you also see a lot of really young couples that now have to go through IVF. Mm. And the number of people that have to go through that is just absolutely mind-blowing. So for that number of couples to experience some problem with getting pregnant, even if it's being delayed until late 30s or 40, mm. is really mind-blowing. I think it's good, though, to actually touch on the fact that it can be the male's fertility. Oh, because absolutely. This is a, you know, these numbers don't get bandied around very much. No. And I know that we've spoken about IVF and, and how... Um, you know, emotional it can be apart yeah. from the actual physical uh, stuff that you're going through. Like it's it's very complex, but a yeah. lot of it falls on the shoulders of the woman. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, I think in half the cases it's a male factor mm. that's causing the infertility. So it's definitely not... Just a female problem, and, and you know, and, and I think these statistics that we've been talking about show that males are likely to become an even bigger contributor to this problem if we continue to get exposed to all of these chemicals. Okay, so let's think about what we can do because this is really otherwise yeah. it's quite depressing. Yeah. Otherwise, um, I heard a thing this morning actually on the radio. There was a, a conference on in Melbourne, and there was um, someone talking about vertical farming as a concept to the way we grow food, mm. and he was saying that. The benefit of it is that you can do it inside because the light that you use to grow the food can be produced by LEDs because you work out the correct frequencies that the plants are looking for mm-hmm. and you don't need soil. You can just spray the nutrients onto the plants and they and you can grow them really well yeah. on there. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe that's the solution, <laughs> that we actually have to grow our food in a situation whereby it's not being exposed to this stuff. It is. I mean, I think that's the kind of things we have to look at is the best ways to try and avoid our exposure to these chemicals. But like I said, you know, I think there's there's a couple of hundred of chemicals which are registered as endocrine disruptors. So mm. they're known to affect the, the hormonal signalling in our body. But then there's thousands of others, <laughs> which we haven't tested yet. So we're not sure if they have endocrine disrupting capabilities or not. So like I was saying before, I think navigating through that space is incredibly difficult. I think it's something we really, it's going to take us a long time to get a handle on exactly what the impact of these chemicals are. Another really disturbing thing is we know that if you're exposed to a couple of these things in combination, so you have BPA, say, from a drinking bottle, but then you also have atrazine, which is this pesticide we use in Australia, terrible pesticide, um, they actually work together to have an even worse effect than those two chemicals would individually. So it's not just about the things that you eat in the daytime or, or, or whatever, it's the combination of chemicals then that you're being exposed to as sort of an additive effect of all the things that you've consumed in the day. So it just makes it really difficult. And it's in cosmetics. Well, not going to leave the house now. Right. So, well, <laughs> the house is a terrible place for endocrine disruptors. So they're in flame retardants, which are everywhere. So when you buy a couch and it's got that new smell, new car smell, full of endocrine disruptors, which are affecting your fertility potentially. So, I mean, it's really problematic. You have to stand in the middle of a field and do nothing. See, I, I am a bit of a Luddite too. So this idea that you go and you buy everything secondhand and you buy an old car and yeah. all that, there's merit to that. There is definitely merit to that. Yeah, Let all those horrible, noxious chemicals just... Just <laughs> yeah. wear out. Yeah, wear out. 
So this is the part where I reckon we should get on the phone to the politicians. What do you think? Like right now. Oh, well. <laughs> Let's do that in real time. <laughs> Excuse but me, the thing, Prime Minister. We also, when we spoke to Nicole, the building biologist, mm. I'm saying that because I can't say her surname, um, <laughs> I asked her that question too, is how do we make a difference? And she was like, yes, you need to get start with the council. You yeah. know, they're spraying the footpaths. Our water is disrupted. We need to actually be... Mm, proactive. Yeah, absolutely proactive and like ruffling feathers and being noisy. Mm. But I think everybody looks at that and goes, oh, my gosh, that's just so hard. But it isn't, one person. it isn't that hard if we all stick together. Mm. I mean, there you go, I am getting political. Um, but I think it's also that thing of awareness again where you go, well, surely if companies are, are spraying this stuff, they should have to prove that it's safe to do so before they use it instead of the Professor other way around Pask having to prove that it isn't safe and therefore they should stop. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> so as a research scientist, you know, I'm primarily engaged in just doing the research to show that, yes, these things do have an effect at a certain level. Mm. And then beyond that, you know, I really, I don't know all about health policy, the EPA's policies on those things. So we try and get the information out there and then do things like this, like do the podcast and talk to as many people as possible, present this data everywhere that we can mm. and really try and get the community aware of what's going on with these chemicals. But hopefully, I mean, the, the last study we did was looking at this chemical in Australia called atrazine. So this is a terrible herbicide um, that's been banned in the European Union for over 10 years because of its known impacts to our hormones. So it's an endocrine disruptor, absolutely banned everywhere in the European Union. No surprises, the what US still doing? dumps tonnes of it on their crops. But then Australia, we also dump tonnes of this stuff on our crops. And so what we did in the study in my lab is we actually took the level that we're allowed to be exposed to in Australia, what is considered our safe level in drinking water, and we exposed mice to that level and just saw what happened to them. Mm. And lo and behold, they have decreased fertility. Now, atrazine, it's, uh, it's used a lot on soft fruits. Um, it's used a lot on soy products. It's used a lot in, in wheat production. And so we spray it over hectares of Australia, just mm, so thousands of... it goes of, on lots of other things too. It goes all over the place. And it gets into our food, it gets into our drinking water, so it gets runoff from the farms as mm. well. That's particularly a problem in Australia because we have very low rainfall. So what it means is when we eventually do get rain and it washes the pesticides off the crops, it's really concentrated in those sort of collecting basins. That's not just bad for us, it's bad for our native animals as well. So they're drinking from that. It's affecting their reproduction. We all have the same <gasps> hormones. So it's this really big issue. Mm. And again, it's one of those things that I'm gobsmacked about that we have rules in place where you, we can have this really high level of exposure to this particular chemical, yeah. which definitely causes us to have reproductive impacts. And we're not even using the gold standard of the European Union to be how we should set our chemical levels. We should always follow the Germans, I think. Right, not America. <laughs> I think we know that. <laughs> also, does this affect female hormones the way it affects male hormones? That's a really good question. So... It's interesting. So females, when you develop as an early baby, um, the early ovary, when it st starts to develop, doesn't actually produce any hormones. So there's nothing that really happens very early in female development that you have lots of hormones happening. So you kind of develop as a female down what we used to call the default pathway, whereas if you don't receive any hormonal signals, an embryo will just follow a female developmental pathway. Oh, okay. So oh, that's right, because everyone starts off potentially female. Yeah, and that's exactly. Why. So uh -huh. if you're a male, then you get 
little testes. And the first thing they do, and this is really early, so in the first trimester of pregnancy, they start pumping out tons of testosterone. Of course they do. Right, of course. (laughs) And then that starts to masculinise the embryo really early on. So you need all of those things. So we, we both start with a little genital tubercle, it's called, between our legs. And in the females, that becomes the clitoris if it doesn't see hormones or it becomes the penis in males if it sees testosterone. Exactly the same structure, just follows two different developmental pathways. And do you know what triggers that testosterone? It is just the gonads itself. So we have a Y chromosome Mm. in males and that has one gene on it called the SRY gene, which is really important. And that triggers that little gonad when we're developing. So again, males and females have the same little gonad and that triggers it in males to just say, become a testis, start pumping out testosterone, and then that does everything else. That then masculinises the whole embryo. Uh And so for males, if you interfere with that early hormone production and you suppress that testosterone, it causes all sorts of issues. Mm. In females, when they're developing, because they don't normally see those hormones, if you have some estrogen circulating around there, it wasn't thought to impact development too much or really cause many issues. Mm. Now, some of the work that we've been doing in mice would suggest that when we expose a pregnant mum to oestrogen, we do actually see female defects. And we see something similar to hyperspadius, what we see in males where the urethra is abnormal in females, where the urethra is abnormally placed. But again, that's something in females, so in women, in human females, that I don't know how much it would be noticed. It's something that's sort of cryptic Mm, and mm. and hidden and we don't really look at it in great detail all the time. And so it makes me wonder, although we don't think these things are having the same impact to reproductive health in females as they are in males, whether there is still subtle effects that are impacting early development. Right. I am really worried, though, about my son now. I keep thinking, what am I going to (laughs) do? He's going to have to eat an organic uh, diet of lettuce leaves from the garden and nothing else. And go and catch his own tuna. Oh, God. (laughs) How am I going to break it to him that he's only allowed to have tuna once a week or something? Yeah, it's a tough one. Professor Andrew Pask, thank you so much for being part of the Wellness Collective today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope, you know, I haven't terrified everybody about every food that you eat. Um, I think my main passion is that we we just need to do more research into these chemicals and really start to understand if there is a safe level, what that safe level is of our exposure. And then we start to, we need to get much more aggressive, I think, about the policies that we have in place for the use of BPA and BPB and some of these pesticides. And I think that is going to take the community getting more engaged in saying, actually, we don't want these things sprayed on our fruits and vegetables. Mm. We don't want these things being used in our environment. I think it's it's something we do have to all take responsibility for. And there's evidence is out there. So we have to start listening to our declining fertility rates and mm. increased rates of male infertility and start to really think about what that means in our environment around us. Right. So... This was the end of the interview. I turned off the mic and he kept talking. Oh my gosh, I love it. And I was like, that's where the juicy stop, stuff is. Stop, stop, wait, wait. And so I pressed record again, which is pretty funny um, because he started talking about the brain development of a baby in utero and how chemicals and hormones can affect that as well mm-hmm. and about how it affects our gender and our gender identity and all kinds of amazing things. So I managed to catch that. Yeah, so hormones are really important for the developing fetus in 
defining your gender identity and also in setting who your brain perceives to be your sexual partner. And that's really important during our early development that our brain gets imprinted in a, in a particular way. So if you think, you know, we've evolved from every other animal species on mm-hmm. Earth, you know, and if you're a, a rabbit or a dog, you don't have social constructs like somebody wearing a dress or lipstick or whatever to know who your <laughs> sexual partner is. So you have to be able to take in these subtle cues. And one of the most important things for passing your genes on to the next generation, which makes you ultimately a genetically fit individual is being able to recognise what your sexual identity, so understanding I am a man or I am a woman, Mm -hmm. and then who your sexual partner is that you should then mate with a man or a woman. And if any of those things are discordant or don't match up, then presumably you're not going to pass your DNA on to the next generation and that's sort of it for your genetic lineage. You're not going to pass your DNA on. Right. And so it's really important these things are very hardwired in our brain about how you identify those things. And so in males, what's really interesting is it's actually that testosterone we were talking about before that gets pumped out from the testes very early on in the fetus actually go to the brain and then in the brain they get converted to oestrogen and it's actually oestrogen in the male brain that patterns that male behaviour. And so this starts to make us wonder again what's happening when you're a female fetus, for example, that gets exposed to very high levels of some of these endocrine-disrupting substances because if it's able to travel to the brain and activate some of these oestrogen networks, then potentially that could masculinise some of the brain behaviours. And similarly in males, if you have very high levels of these endocrine disruptors, it actually suppresses testosterone output. So your testosterone goes down. Mm -hmm. And then how does that affect how the male brain is going to pattern as a result of that reduced testosterone? So it might not pattern in the normal way. Mm. And we do seem to see, again, it's anecdotal evidence of an increase in things like gender identity disorder. So that's when you believe that you have the wrong gender that's not concordant with your body. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, there are things that we talk about a lot more now and we didn't use to talk about 10 or 20 years ago. Of course. So it's really difficult for us to kind of get a handle on Is exactly what more? the levels are. Or, yeah, yeah. Yep. On what's increased reporting versus, you know, actual increases in these things. But that's a space I think that's going to be really interesting to watch now that we talk about these things all the time over the coming decades because for sure if these things are impacting the way our gonads develop, the way our external genitalia develop, they're also going to be impacting the way that our brain develops as well. So there you go. I'm really bummed that you weren't here for this yeah, one. Yeah, no, I'm bummed too. Uh, the beautiful thing about Professor Andrew Pask is he's really fun and he's just around the corner and I'm sure if we ask him and we can drag him out of his um, science lab and right. he can uh, come and tell us more about right. his, his uh, research because Love it's it. really, really interesting. Hey, you know, my other favourite thing to do before we say goodbye to everybody yeah. is to read a review because people have actually been reviewing us more. Oh, I know, it's fantastic. We would love to invite you to do that um, just on iTunes. It's pretty easy. You can not only rate, but you can actually have your two cents. You can say what you like and mm. not what you don't like. Well, <laughs> I like that. I do that. <laughs> you only want good vibes. Um, but that's pretty funny because the good thing about it too, it's not just about us going, oh, wow, great we got some good reviews. It actually gives us some idea of yes. what you're enjoying listening to really and does. what we should do more of and 
Yeah, myself absolutely. All that kind of stuff. I have one here and yeah. it says, thanks, ladies. Thank you for your wonderful podcast, ladies. I listen to them all and love discovering when a new one has been uploaded. Yes. It's well, actually very frequent these days. Great conversation starters about all kinds of things that can sometimes be hard to talk about. Mm. Keep the good content coming, Meg. We she gave us two, two kisses as well. Oh, that's I very know. nice. I know. Now, if you've subscribed, you will actually get the little ding that says yes. you've got one on a Friday, I yes. think, at the moment. Um, so please subscribe and head over to our Insta page, which is Collective The Wellness. Um, we've got, we're getting there with some people, but it's very, yes. it's such a good way to keep in touch and we, we love sharing our guests and everything and all the info there and you've got some really funny bits and bobs that you put up on that. I try my best. Makes me lol. Well, it's just life's supposed to be a little bit lolly. Do you know what? I keep saying lol and my husband's like, how old are you? That's okay. 16? Yep. And yep. keeping it young, mate. Keeping I, it young and I keeping digress. it fresh. And you keep up with me. That's what you need to tell him. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I know that um, I learnt things and that's always good. It is good for yes. you, yes. Well, no, no one knows everything. Well, well no, knows. of course not. But it's interesting too that, you know, we, we concentrate on the female stuff so much and it's really good to be able to check in with the guys and help our, help our men and our Absolutely. boys. Oh, boy. Absolutely. Until next time. We hope you are feeling a little happier, healthier, healthier. and better. We haven't worked that out, have no, we? we haven't. How do we say it?